Before they were Beatles, episode 11, Rocking the Casbah. This is a story of how one of the thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity, and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence, and at times, just sheer luck. It's a story of beginnings, the story of John, Paul, George, and Ringo, before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1, September 1959. The Quarrymen, for the first time in their short and turbulent history, now had a residency. They played at the Casbah every Saturday night that month with gigs on the 10th, 19th and 26th. After the gigs were over and the club emptied of paying customers, Pete Best started to mess around with drum kits used by other bands, including Ringo's. It has been suggested that Pete even sat in with the Quarrymen on a few gigs around this time, but that seems unlikely. Pete didn't yet own his own drums, and the Quarrymen certainly didn't have a drum kit to call their own. Plus, Pete Best has never mentioned it. Part 2, October 1959. While the Casbah went from strength to strength, the Cavern was in financial trouble. The downturn in its fortune started in late 1958, and by 12 months later, the club was struggling to survive. A rival jazz club called the Mardi Gras Jazz Club had opened in a better area of Liverpool and had started to attract the jazz devotees away from the cavern. The local skiffle bands were becoming less likely to play the cavern due to owner Alan Sittner's policy of fining them for slipping rock and roll numbers into their acts. With the crowds diminishing and his alienation of the new breed of cheap homegrown talent, the recently married Sittner moved to London and handed over the running of the club to his father. Dr Sittner decided to try and attract people back by booking big name and high cost nationally recognised bands. The gamble failed and by mid-1959, the bands at the Cavern were playing to as few as 50 people. In stark contrast, the Iron Door Rock Club located nearby was having to turn business away. Iron Door promoter and owner Sam Lynch estimates he was pulling in as many as 2,000 people for a Saturday night gig at that time. Desperate to be rid of the burden, the Sittner family sold the jazz club to their accountant Ray McFall for the sum of £2,750. McFall appreciated all sorts of music and could see the success of the nearby clubs like the Iron Door. As a result, he had a more open policy and the local skiffle slash rock bands started to trickle back. McFall also hired local personality, ex-soldier and Liverpool Parks policeman Pat Paddy Delaney as bouncer for his club, which was now officially known as The Cavern. A change in direction for the club was not immediately obvious as it reopened under new management on 3rd of October 1959 with a performance from Ackerbilk and his Paramount Jazz Band. The same night, the Quarrymen played, as usual, at the Casbah. 
A week after the resurrection of the cavern and a day after John's 19th birthday on the 9th, the Quarrymen were to go through yet another lineup change. For this, and this gig was destined to be the last one that the Quarrymen played at the Casbah. When the group arrived to set up for the evening gig, Mona Best was horrified to see that Ken Brown was suffering from a flu-like head cold, although some reports say it was a twisted ankle. Whatever the cause, he could hardly stand and was in no condition to play. Mrs. Best ushered him into a chair at the club door so he could collect the ticket money. The gig itself went off without a hitch as John, Paul and George worked through their set as a trio. But when it came time to get paid, things turned ugly. Mona Best paid them each their 15 shilling fee, including Ken. Paul was incensed that Ken should be paid as he hadn't been on stage while they'd all been working. He felt that the fee should have been split between the three of them. Mona's best response was that she paid the group a set fee of £3 and Ken was part of the group and that by working the door, if that was the case, he had actually helped collect the money. Paul's protest grew louder and John and George backed him up. The simple solution was that Ken shouldn't be part of the group. So from now on, he wasn't. It was that simple. They had proved that evening that they didn't need him and that they could manage as a trio. As a parting shot, they swore that they would never play the Casbar again and they never did. Well, not under the name The Quarrymen anyway. Ken's brown reaction was immediate and one that would have consequences for his departed colleagues within a year. Pete Best recalls, quote, Down in the club, I'd been having a tinker on the drums from time to time, and after that 15 shilling incident, Ken said, Why don't we form a group of our own, Pete? Come on, you on drums. And that was how the Blackjacks were born. The Blackjacks are the members including Chaz Newby on lead guitar and Bill Barlow on bass. To get the group going, Mona Best bought Pete a new drum kit from Blacker's department store where George was still employed. It wasn't long before Pete and Ken's group were alternating Saturday dates at the Casbah with Alan Caldwell's Raving Texans, now renamed Roy Storm and his Hurricanes, with Ringo Starkey on drums. In fact, a friendly competition involved between the two was just, just who could pull the biggest crowd, and the Blackjacks won, but only just. The Hurricanes were fast becoming the top act on the Liverpool club circuit. Caldwell was first and foremost a performer and a promoter, and he had already secured the Raving Texans a one-off radio spot on L- Radio Luxembourg's Skiffle Club, making them the first Liverpool group of this era to get any radio play. After changing the group's name, Colwell legally changed his own name to Rory Storm and proceeded to live up to his new moniker. He would gyrate around the stage even more suggestively than Elvis. If the gig was held at a local swimming pool, Storm would sometimes climb the diving board, strip down to red swimming trunks and dive in as part of his act. And the rest of the group were sometimes known to be just as rowdy and boisterous. Ringo was even known to pitch drumsticks at hecklers in the audience. His drum solos got longer and the beat got heavier, and the Hurricanes were fast developing into a powerhouse of rock and roll. In stark contrast, now back to being a trio and without a regular gig, John, Paul and George returned to the talent show circuit almost immediately. The day after they quit the Casbah, they turned up at Liverpool's Empire Theatre to audition for Carol Levy's latest talent search. This time, the ultimate prize was an appearance on Levy's TV show, Star Search. As the Quarrymen had failed in their previous attempt and worried that Levy's might remember them, John decided to ditch the name in favour of a new one. 
So after three years, the name Quarrymen was resigned to history. Instead, Carol Levis found himself auditioning Johnny and the Moondogs. Levis was intrigued where the name came from and asked John what Moondogs meant. John responded that it meant, quote, Red Indian who bangs tin cans together. In fact, the name was just a typical John nonsense made up on the spur of the moment. John wanted something that stuck to the popular lead singer and backing group naming convention of the time. Johnny and the Moondogs passed the audition and played in two regional rounds at the Empire on the 18th and the 25th of October. The Liverpool round was won by the Connaughts, with Johnny and the Moondogs finishing third, just good enough to qualify for the next round to be held in nearby Manchester. Rory Storm and the Hurricanes also tried out for the Carol Levy show, finishing second in their round to King Size Taylor and the Dominoes. To celebrate their success, Johnny and his Moondogs headed to their latest haunt, the Jacaranda Coffee Bar. The coffee bar had become a regular spot for Paul and George, and it was here that they would often meet up with John and his college mate, Stuart Sutcliffe. Part 3, November 1959. November the 15th found John, Paul and George on the train ride to Manchester for their first performance outside of the Merseyside area. They decided to concentrate on a set comprised of Buddy Holly songs, even practising It's So Easy on the train. It's so easy to fall in love It's so easy to fall in love For some reason, John was without a guitar at this point. According to Paul, John must have sold or bust his guitar. So the trio arrived with just Paul and George having instruments. The competition was to be held at the Hippodrome on Hyde Road in Ardwick, a large Baroque-style theatre. The trio positioned themselves centre stage. John was in the middle with his arms draped over Paul and George's shoulders. Due to Paul playing his guitar left-handed, the two guitars pointed outwards, giving a stylish effect. After a momentary silence, they launched into Bumpy Holly songs, Think It Over. And Ray Vaughan. sung by John and Paul. Although George and John sang together on another Holly song, Words of Love. Words of love you whisper soft and true. It was already becoming obvious that what set Johnny and the Moondogs apart from the other groups was the vocal interplay between Lennon and McCartney. After their set, John Paul and George hung around backstage until they had to rush to leave and catch the last train to Liverpool. Their baggage now included three guitars, as John appeared to have acquired one somewhere backstage. Unfortunately for the Moondogs, the competition was to be decided on a clapometer, which measured the volume of audience response when each act was brought back on stage at the end of the show. And when it came time for Johnny and the Moondogs to receive their applause, they were nowhere to be found, for they were sat on the train home, being unable to afford a hotel room so they could stay in Manchester overnight. In fact, none of the Liverpool bands in attendance, including Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, fared any better. The winners of the star search were Manchester locals Ricky and Dane. Ricky and Dane were in fact Alan Clark and Graham Nash, later of the Hollies. And of course, Graham Nash went on to even greater stardom in Crosby, Stills and Nash. Also on their bill that night were Billy Fury, who would cross paths with John, Paul and George again within the year, and Manchester local Freddie Garrity, who would later find fame as lead singer of Freddie and the Dreamers. You were made for me, everybody tells me so, you were made for me. 
Following their return to Liverpool, George decided to once again upgrade his guitar, maybe to keep pace with the new one that John had obtained in Manchester. On November the 20th, he opened a higher purchase account at Hess's and put down his first payment on a new Futurama 5 electric guitar. A few days after the Manchester gig, a few days after the Manchester gig, the John Moores Art Exhibition opened at the Walker Art Gallery on William Brown Street in Liverpool. It featured a piece by John's friend Stuart Sutcliffe. In fact, Stuart had been working on the abstract expressionist piece for months. It was designed to be a huge canvas, eight feet by eight feet, divided into two sections. Once it was completed, their friend Rod Murray and Stuart delivered the first section to the gallery, then headed to the pub before going back to Percy, their flat at Percy Street to collect the second section. However, they were confronted by the landlady who had found a piece of her antique furniture smouldering in the fireplace and she ordered the boys out immediately. Rod and Stuart soon located a new flat at 3 Gambia Terrace where they were soon joined by a new tenant, John Lennon. However, during the rush to move, the second section of Stuart's painting was totally forgotten and it never made it to the show. Unaware that it was only one half of a much bigger piece, the exhibition committee still selected Stuart's summer painting for the show and it was the only student piece selected. It was an honour to be selected. To add to Stuart's success, our patron John Moore, the exhibition's benefactor, bought his painting for 50 guineas, £65. John's immediate response to his friend's windfall was to suggest that Stuart use it to buy a much-needed bass guitar for his group and become a member. John's girlfriend Cynthia recalls that the official offer for Stuart to join the Moondogs was made at the Gambia Terrace flat. Paul recalls that the invitation was made on a Friday evening at the Casbah where they still hung out even if they were no longer playing there. Wherever the offer was made, the underlying reason was that no one else wanted to play the bass, but they all recognised that without a regular drummer, they needed some rhythm behind the guitars. Paul recalls John persuading Stuart, quote, get a bass man, because then you could be in the band. It's not hard bass, you don't have to know lots of chords and stuff. Several of Stuart's friends expressed dismay at him joining John's group. Even mutual friend Bill Harry, despite his enthusiasm from rock and roll in general, and John's group in particular, expressed concerns. Manny felt that Stuart was such a talented artist that he should have focused on his natural talents. But rock and roll was fun, and for Stuart it was a way to escape and relax. Part 4, December 1959 As the year closed, John turned his creative talents to writing by producing a special version of Cinderella for the College of Arts Christmas Pantomime. The panto was performed in the basement canteen of the college, with John playing one of the ugly sisters, while Stuart played the fairy snow. 1959 had been a year of change for John, Paul and George. They had started out with no real musical direction. In fact, they didn't even have a group. Yet by the year end, they'd reformed, played and lost their first residency, had some success in national competition and found that elusive bass player. All they needed now was a drummer and a name. In our next episode, we look at the first few months as 1960 as the boys find themselves a name and a manager. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Quarrymen, In Spite of All the Danger, Aka Bilk and the Paramount Jazz Band, Aka's Away, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, featuring Ringo Starkey, Something Else, Buddy Holly, It's So Easy, Think It Over, Ray Vaughan, and Words of Love. The Hollies, Bus Stop, Billy Fury, Don't Jump, Freddie and the Dreamers, You Were Made For Me. You can find full versions of the music heard in this episode in the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which I'll add a link in the show notes. 
If you'd like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, writer and producer, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrid Entertainment, a division of 4J's Group, LLC.